And that makes tonight a great night to be in church because we are actually beginning our 2023 Christmas series tonight, which is called When Hope Was Born, which is always something that's good to celebrate. Now, hope is not just a concept. Hope is not a feeling. Well, it is a feeling, but it's not just a feeling. Hope is a person. And everything changed when hope was born. 400 years of silence was broken. And the longing of the prophets and the saints of old were realized when a baby named Jesus took his very first breath on the very first Christmas night. God became flesh, sin began to lose its grip, and hope burst forth like the dawn. And so what we're going to be doing in this series over the next uh, few weeks is we're going to be exploring the significance of Jesus' birth. We're going to be looking at some of the stories that give meaning to why we celebrate Christmas every year and why it's important to us. And we're going to explore how hope was born to us so that hope could be born within us. And tonight, in particular, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at the promise of hope and how God spoke to generations throughout history about the arrival of a man who would change the world forever. A man who would be a king, but who would also be a servant. A man who would be a judge, but who would also be a redeemer. A man who would be fully God, but also fully man. And so, as we look at this promise of hope that was man, just ached for and longed for by generations of old tonight, what I am hoping that you will all see tonight is that despite the heartache that sometimes goes along with it, some things truly are worth waiting for. But before we get into that, as always, let's take a moment, let's bow our heads, let's pray, let's ask God to show up in this space tonight. So Jesus, I just thank you for every person that's here tonight. I thank you for those who have come from near, from far, those who are listening to this recording online. Lord, I thank you for those who um, have come in with heavy things. And Lord, I just pray that tonight you would lift those off of them. Lord, I thank you that this is a, a space to, to come to a well to receive uh, a drink from your hope tonight. And so, Lord, would every single person walk out of here with something to drink, something that satisfies them, something that sustains them, something that opens their eyes to see something they couldn't see before. Lord, I pray that we would sit in the hope that is found in the Christmas story and that it would be something that is not just cliche to us as followers of Jesus, but something that's alive, something that's dynamic, something that we want to give out and spill out on all the people that are around us. And so would hope overflow in each of us tonight. We give you this time and we love you. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. amen. You guys give such good amens. Thank you. <laughs> Bonus amen. So some things are worth waiting for. So let me tell you about one of the best days of my entire life. So I've had this dream for a very, very long time. I've had this dream. It's a dream I've thought about since I was probably like 15 years old. And that dream is this. I've had this dream that I wanted to spend an entire day on a pontoon boat, on a lake, in northern Michigan, in summertime, 
with people that I love. Some very specific criteria to this dream. But hey, that's, that's my dream. I get to have it how I want, right? So that was my dream. I wanted to spend the entire day on a pontoon boat. And so I just, I wanted to soak up the sunshine. I wanted to wear my togs all day. I wanted to swim in the clear blue water. And I mean, I just wanted to hang out all day till the sun goes down. I mean, talk about a perfect day, right? Does that sound like a cool thing to do? Now, um, depending on uh, whether you've seen one of these or not, you might not actually know what a pontoon boat is. You've probably seen some in Canada, Crystal. Uh, so for context, let me show you a picture of what a pontoon boat looks like. So this is a pretty flash pontoon boat. Uh, so uh, I've in fact never been on one this flash, but I thought this one just captured why they're awesome. They're just kind of like a platform for fun on a lake. It's just a good time. So if you've ever been looking for a platform for fun, you've thought to yourself, that's what I need in my life. Pontoon boats are the answer. And so... Um, uh, yeah, so that's pontoon boat. Uh, now, just for some more context, just to kind of paint the picture of this dream of mine, I want to show you a picture of just an average lake in northern Michigan. Looks like that in the summertime. In the winter, it's like a frozen uh, wasteland, but in summertime, really lovely. You know, there's no mountains, but I, I think we do all right. And actually, in Michigan, we're, we're pretty proud of our lakes, uh, but I have wondered if that's because we're compensating for all the lead that's in the water in our pipes. Um, which is very possible, but um, uh, yeah, but all the same, uh, it's a very lovely place to spend the summertime, just don't drink the water, <laughs> if you know what's good for you. Now, we don't use uh, pontoon boats very much here in New Zealand, uh, unless, unless I'm missing something, so somebody can totally feel free to correct me, but as I understand it, pontoon boats are kind of designed, as you can see by their design, for more like a calm, still kind of water surface, whereas most of our bodies of water here are kind of just generally mildly life-threatening at any given time, <laughs> and so, um, so they don't really suit. And so because I live here in New Zealand, I've just never been really too sure when I was going to be able to fulfill this dream. And on top of that, boats are just kind of expensive, uh, as anyone who owns one will tell you. But earlier this year, we were visiting home. We flew home for Michigan's summer, and my older sister was hit with this absolute lightning bolt of geniusness. She goes, hey, why don't we just get the whole extended family together, and we'll just all chip in, and we'll just hire a pontoon boat for an entire day, like a 15-seater one. And I was like, why have we never done this? Why did nobody think of this before? And so <laughs> we make a booking for a boat right away. I mean, I think it went straight to the computer. Yes, let's do it. And so for the next two weeks, I'm just frothing with excitement. I'm catching up with old friends I haven't seen in years, and all I can think about is this boat. And so I start looking up videos of people. They're hanging out on pontoon boats. I start Googling ideas to get inspired for some good boat food because uh, I didn't know what I should eat on the boat. And actually, I even started listening to country music just so I could you know, get into the, into the right frame of mind. And so the day arrives, and we get there, and the weather is perfect. Beautiful day. It's sunny. It's 20-some degrees out. And we get out to the jetty, and it is just marvelous. And we got out on that pontoon boat, and man, we motored out in the middle of Otsego Lake, and we spent all day out on that lake, me and my family. We ate great food. We went swimming off the side of the boat in the water. We laughed until our sides hurt, and we hooned around that lake all day long with a top speed of 20 k's an hour. 
we were a menace to society. <laughs> so let me show you a picture of me with my family on one of the best days of my life. Oh, no, sorry, not, not that one. Uh, no, 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 come on, no, not that one. Yes, here it is. Me on a boat with my family, hooning around, having the best day of my life, except for Emmanuel. He was, he was kind of fried at this point. And actually, Sarah said it was one of the, the worst days she's ever experienced. Uh, so dreams are relative, aren't they? Dreams are relative. But you know what? I, I actually still can't get over how great that day was. I literally, like, this smile is not like a forced thing. I literally spontaneously smile every time I recount this experience to people. And honestly, I feel like I dreamed about this for so long that now that I've actually finally done it, I can honestly die happy. Like, I really could. But I won't. I'm not planning to anyway. Some things are worth waiting for. Some things are worth waiting for. The book of Proverbs makes an observation in chapter 13, verse 12. It says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The truth is no one likes waiting around for something that they are excited about. It makes the heart ache, makes the heart ache in big ways, makes the heart ache in small ways. But when you finally lay hold of that thing that you've been longing for and hoping for, it is like a tree of life that gives you joy in the moment and it also keeps on giving you joy, especially as you reflect back on it. And that's true, I think, for the hope of pontoon boats and sun-soaked summer days, but I think it's also true for the hope that was born on the night of the first Christmas. 400 years, God had been silent. And before that, generations had come generations had gone. Kingdoms and prophets arose and they fell. Yet through the centuries, there was this beautiful thread of hope that God foreshadowed time and time again. It was this promise of hope that one day God himself would come and rescue us from the tyranny of our sin. And this promise of hope, which had been whispered into the ears of prophets and declared in the halls of kings all across the Old Testament. On the first Christmas night, that hope was suddenly something that was no longer future and deferred, but something that was fully realized in the now. Everything changed when hope was born. And as we look at the Christmas story over the coming weeks, what I want to zero in on specifically tonight is I want to explore with you how Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem all those years ago did not represent some kind of surprise as if it was something unexpected. But rather, Jesus' arrival came as the fulfillment of a number of prophecies that were given throughout the Old Testament that foreshadowed the coming of a Messiah who would save the people of God once and for all. And as we look at the promise of that hope tonight, what I hope you will see is that some things really are worth waiting for. Now, I kind of imagine this promise of hope as being a bit like a canvas. You can imagine it starts blank and 
Each prophecy about Jesus and each story that foreshadowed something of what he would be like, it's like the brushstroke of another color being added onto the canvas. And if you're looking at it all zoomed in like this, like you see behind me, then each brushstroke by itself, it might not really look like anything. Each one by itself might just be, you know, kind of a streak of yellow here, a streak of red here, a streak of gray there. But collectively, as the painter adds more and more brushstrokes with their paintbrush of the right color in the right place, it's actually only when you take a step back and you see the canvas as a whole that the full picture comes into focus the longer you watch them paint. And so all of the brushstrokes together create a tapestry and something that moves us deeply. Unless, of course, you're watching my two-year-old son paint, uh, which case you're probably not going to be able to see anything recognizable, but A for effort. <laughs> so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to zoom way out. We're going to try to look at some different parts of this canvas of God's story, and we're going to try to see if we can spot some of the hope that God was painting the whole way through it. And so tonight, I'm going to cover a lot of different scriptures, but what I want you to see out of them is that they're all connected by this thread of hope that God was weaving through the story, which is this promise of the Christ who was to come. And so the question is, in the Old Testament, where did this promise of hope begin? Where did the first brushstroke of the painter land? Was it in Isaiah, Psalms, Deuteronomy? None of those ones. It was in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And actually, it was Genesis chapter 3, meaning it only took three chapters into your Bible for something to be mentioned about Jesus, which is pretty cool. So in the beginning, God creates all things. And it can be a bit hard for us to imagine these days, but in the original creation, God created everything to be good. And it was perfectly good. He created the stars and the animals and he created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, to be, well, good, like he was. And he puts them in this lovely garden called Eden, a beautiful place, a place of wonder, a place of majesty, but most importantly, a place where God could dwell with humanity. But unfortunately, things did not go according to plan. And you'll have to read Genesis if you want the details, but the long and the short of it is that the devil shows up in the form of a snake and he convinces Adam and Eve to eat from the one tree that God told them not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> and with that first act of rebellion, because Adam and Eve took that fruit, something called sin entered the human race, something that had never been there before. And every act of selfishness, greed, hate, anger and evil ever since has actually flowed from that first act of rebellion. Sin would go on to break us and unfortunately break the world. By all accounts at this point in the story, which admittedly is pretty early on in the book, it looked like something beautiful had died and it looked like all hope was lost. Yet there in the immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin came God's very first mention of his rescue plan. 
Speaking to Satan in the aftermath, God promised the following in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Oh, sorry. How's that, Kim? Is that right? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, here's something interesting about this passage. They actually have a theological term for it. It's called, um, oh, I have to check, yeah, proto-evangelium, proto-evangelium, which is something that you can say to your friends if you want to say, uh, sound smart to them. Um, although, if you don't say it right, like I'm doing, then you sound less smart. Um, <laughs> that's the way it goes. So, proto-evangelium is a Latin word, and it actually literally means the first gospel. <laughs> I love that. And it's viewed in hindsight as the very first foreshadowing of Christ who would come as a man, as one of Eve's offspring, one of her descendants. And so what it suggests to us all the way back in the book of Genesis is that one day Satan was going to deliver a blow to Jesus' heel, but Jesus was going to deliver a blow to Satan's head. In other words, Jesus was, or Satan was going to land a punch on Jesus, but Jesus was going to deliver a knockout blow back. And so it's this early picture of the fact that although Jesus would one day be executed on a cross, there was no way that that grave would be able to hold him for very long. The first gospel, the first brushstroke of hope on our canvas. From there, the story continues, and sin wreaks havoc. A murder over here, a war over there, great violence over here, a flood over there. And yet God continues to weave this thread of hope into the story. Out of Eve's offspring, God picks a family through which Christ would one day be born into. And he calls a man from what is now modern-day Iraq, Abraham, and he calls him to be the father of the Jewish people. And a day came when Abraham would raise a knife to sacrifice his own son Isaac. But God would stop him in the act and God would provide a lamb instead. And this is another picture of the future Christ, the lamb of God, whom God would provide to be sacrificed in our place so that we can live and not die. Another story. Another brushstroke of hope on the canvas. The great narrative continues. Satan tries his best to stamp out the Jewish people in Egypt. But God raises a Moses and leads them uh, out of Egypt under the glow of a pillar of fire and smoke and across the Red Sea. He leads them out of enslavement and into a promised land. And this story is a story of many things, but it's also a foreshadowing of the Christ who would one day lead us out of enslavement and into the promised land of his presence. Another brushstroke. Then comes King David, an imperfect man by all accounts. <laughs> Many flaws. But one thing he got right was he was a man who was after God's own heart. And he was a man who actually led the people of God from his heart, which is how Jesus leads. And so David's life was another foreshadowing of Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself quoted David 
out of Psalm 22 when he was on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Believe it or not, David said that first. And so David, he would ache for God in his suffering just as Jesus would one day do. And later on in David's life, God speaks through a prophet, a guy named Nathan, to tell David something wild. Listen to this. He said, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Oh, sorry, what was that? Forever. Forever. That's a long time. So out of David's descendants would come a king, a king who would reign not just for a time, but for forever. A king who would build a house for the Lord himself and reign on David's throne until the end of time. And if it was just David's story that said that, then that might be just kind of an interesting tangent. Uh, but as we'll see in just a minute, it was repeated many different places. Now, David's son, Solomon, he's considered the wisest man who ever lived, but he stuffed it up big time. And so after him, righteous kings were followed by evil kings, kingdoms fell, and empires grew, and the people of God were scattered across the Middle East. Therefore, God raised up prophets during this time to call people out uh, for their evil choices, but more importantly, to point people back to the hope that God still had a rescue plan that was unfolding and that no matter how it looked to them on the outside, all would not be lost forever. There was still hope. And then many years later, while in exile in Babylon, the eyes of another prophet, a man named Daniel, were opened up. And he had this vision. He was able to peer into the very throne room of God. And if you've ever wondered what God's throne looks like, well, here's what it looks like. It says in Daniel chapter 7, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And then in the same vision, Daniel sees something in that throne room that he never expected to see. He sees a man. It continues, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's just wrap our head around this for a second. So this is a different book of the Old Testament written by a different author living in a different country in a different century. 
And despite that, we are again hearing about this son of man who will reign forever, this king who will reign for all of time. They are talking about the same guy. Another brushstroke on the canvas. Now, fun fact, when Jesus was on trial just before he was uh, led to the cross in Matthew 26, he was before the Sanhedrin and they were interrogating him, uh, interrogating him and they asked him to tell them who he was. And he actually, in that moment, refers to himself and says, I am the son of man. Now, there's only one prophet who used that phrase and that was Daniel. Meaning, Jesus, when he said that, was referencing Daniel chapter 7. He was saying to the religious leaders, yeah, that king that was prophesied about to David and to the prophets, you are literally looking at him. I am the man from Daniel chapter 7. I am the man whom Daniel saw all those years ago. And this, far more than anything else that Jesus did, this so enraged the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the high priest actually tears his robes and they rush Jesus out to be executed. They just cannot handle him saying that he is the Daniel 7 man. How dare he suggest that? But here's what's wild. He was. He was that man. And unwittingly, they killed God. Good thing God knows how to raise people from the dead. Stare at another part of the canvas of the Old Testament with me for a moment. And you'll see that the prophet Isaiah spoke of this same man, this same king, and he said this famous statement. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this more colors on the canvas. The, the picture is really beginning to come into focus now. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Across the Old Testament, he's here, he's there, he's over here. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." And get this, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Friends, I want you to catch something out of this tonight. 
prophet after prophet and writer after writer across all the pages of the Old Testament caught these glimpses of this one man, this coming king, this coming redeemer who would usher in a government of peace that would defeat darkness forever. For every sickness that you've ever watched someone suffer, for every broken child who is ever broken by their own broken family, for every soul who is lost in the dark, Jesus has hope for each of them and Jesus has hope for you. And when we zoom out and we look at this canvas as a whole, there, has, there is something that God has been painting across it. Friends, it's hope. It's hope. 2,000 years ago, a man who was first promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden, a man whose origins are from eternity past and whose reign will stretch into eternity future. This humble king was born in Bethlehem, not only to us, he was born for us. And when you close your eyes today and you worship him and you feel the presence of God, then I've got news for you. You are in the same room as the man that Daniel saw. You are in the same room with the, people, with the man whom the prophet saw. He's the same person. He's a real person. And if you've ever done that, if you've ever closed your eyes and been in that place of worship, then you have met this man personally. His story is our story. And his story is what the hope of Christmas is all about. Because through all the longing of generation after generation, we see that Jesus was truly worth waiting for. Would you guys stand to your feet with me? Some things are worth waiting for. Now I just feel in my spirit tonight that God really wants to give us some hope. But I just feel him highlighting that one of the things that can kind of get in the way of him giving us hope is our disappointments. You know, sometimes our disappointments, they, they wound us and they they hurt us, and they feel so big to us that we actually can't see the light that God wants to shine. And so I just feel like for each of us that's here tonight, I feel like the Lord is extending an invitation tonight that he wants to give you this great exchange. He wants to give you hope tonight. And he wants you to actually surrender your disappointments to him tonight. You know, maybe things haven't gone as you wish they would have in your relationships. Maybe things haven't gone how you wish they would have in your family. 
Maybe things haven't gone how you wish they would have with your health, with your work, with your friendships. And maybe you're here tonight and you are really hurting. But I just feel like the Lord would say to you tonight, standing in front of you, He'd say, I see that that hurt you. I see that you're confused. I see that that didn't make sense to you. But I want to take that from you tonight. And if you will surrender your disappointments over to me, then I'd like to give you something in exchange. I'd like to give you some of my hope tonight. And so I just want to invite you, I'm going to pray for you, but just as we uh, close this time, as we go back into a, a time of worship, I just invite you to ask God, what are some of those disappointments that you would like me to surrender to you tonight? What's that thing I've been holding on to, that thing that's made me feel disconnected from God, that thing that I didn't understand why things went the way that they went? And it's brave and it's courageous. It takes courage. But if you surrender that to him tonight, I believe he wants to give you something beautiful in exchange. And so, Lord, tonight, I just thank you for each person that's here. I thank you for the ways in which you've been painting this tapestry of hope across the pages of your word. Um, and I also just pray and, and thank you for the brushstrokes of hope that we see of your own activity in our lives. God, that each of us are canvases. And some things have been painted on the canvas that we wish weren't there. But I know you've got some more paint tonight. You want to paint something new. You want to paint something beautiful. And so, Lord, I pray for grace upon each person here tonight that they'd be willing to bring disappointments to you so they can receive the beauty and the majesty of your hope instead. May the glow of it light up their lives. May the warmth of it fill them completely. May it be like a, a breath of fresh air, the breath of God, the Ruach of God that fills the sails of their lives. gets them going again. We humbly ask you to move tonight, God. We need your help. We love you tonight. In Jesus' name. Let's worship.